Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History podcast, and it's a pleasure to be back with you again for another week. Uh, This week, I have a special guest, and every week, you know, that we we bring out a podcast, I always say we've got a special guest because all of the guests are truly special to me. Uh, As I shared with the audience when we started season two, I said that this would be a little bit different in this season because I was going to be a little bit more focused on what I was personally interested in learning and hearing about. And so um, this is a a part of something that I um, really want to discuss today about historical literacy. And I am so thankful to have with us today uh, Dr. Goldie Muhammad, Golniskar Muhammad, right? I want to make sure I have the name uh, stated properly, who is with us today. Welcome to the Leading by History podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be a part of this. Um, it's great work, and thank you for having me. So you have uh, been receiving a lot of acclaim recently, a text that you wrote um, that is, is called Cultivating Genius. And I think it's, it's published by Scholastic, I think, right? If, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And, and so in, in this Cultivating Genius, I think what stood out to me was that, you know, we talked about restorative excellence using history and literacy. When I came across that and just was reading about historical literacy. Well, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm automatically like, huh, what's going on? And, you know, history is the most marginalized of all content today uh, in K-12 education. They, they've cut it out almost completely around the country in grades K through five. It, it still is holding on for dear life. And I really believe that if we want to boost our children's ability uh, to be functionally and fully literate, that it's going to take the historical component to really be able to to be integrated into English and language arts to really bring that about. And and we're going to have plenty of time to talk about that. So, So first, I know a little bit about you, but can you tell the audience a little bit about your background how you began to be involved in historical literacy. Yes, Um, so a little bit about my background in education. I have served as a classroom teacher, a social studies teacher particularly, but also a literacy teacher who taught um, English language arts and literature and reading. I, Mm. I, I was also a literacy coach and a school district administrator responsible for um, K-12 curriculum and instruction as it relates to literacy development. Um, I've been a school board president and uh, a substitute teacher (laughs) and an educational Mm. consultant. Uh, I tried to be in the presence and company of of learning and teaching uh, young people 
on a pretty regular basis. Um, and then I currently serve as an associate professor of language and literacy at Georgia State University in Atlanta. My PhD is in literacy, language, and culture. And uh, literacy has always been so natural and organic uh, for me in my life, um, especially as a Muslim. You know, in Islam, growing up, uh, being born and raised as a Muslim, you know, like the pen is very powerful in mm -hmm. Islam. Knowledge and seeking knowledge is, is, is how you define an adult <laughs> and an independent mm -hmm. person. So like uh, literacy was threaded, uh, not just implicitly, but explicitly all throughout the Quran. And so reading the Quran growing up and reading it now, you know, this idea of uh, literacy or ikra, um, which mm -hmm. means in Arabic to read, to make sense of, to gather information, to read the world, that was always sort of instilled in me. And so as, as someone who also formally studied literacy, it was always very natural. And the history of it, the historical literacy and studying our people, studying black folks, um, has just always, I've always needed answers. I've always been stuck in education because it just hasn't worked, what we have done. And so I, I started to go to the primary source documents and started to go to black historical excellence for answers. Um, because you do get answers. History gives you answers. Uh, we've just been not looking at the right history for those solutions in education. And it just always excited me and ignited like something inside of me to read more, to study more, to do more. Mm, mm. So I love to hear about your background as a history teacher and then also as an ELA instructor. So, you know, I, I want to know what is the importance of history for the development of childhood literacy? Why, why is it an important component? Because again, when I saw, you know, that you were pushing historical literacy, it was like exactly the lane that I'm in, right? And attempting mm -hmm. to get people to see that, you know, you, you can't have literacy um, outside of, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> hi historiography and the things that have been passed down in the writings about historical events. So, I mean, what's the importance of history on, on the development of childhood literacy? Yeah. And first, everything that you said is really capturing the essence of the book. How can you not have history? You know, when you, when we talk about the importance of like, development of childhood uh, education, you know, first literacy uh, for black folks was synonymous with education. To be literate was to be educated. You know, when we studied the definition of literacy as reading, writing, thinking, speaking of meaning making, literacy is meaning making. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what education is all about. And so history is so important into childhood and youth education or youth literacy because history explains, history theorizes, history justifies everything mm -hmm. we want to know. It explains why we are still in 2020 and have a skills only learning standard, skills only mm -hmm. curriculum, why we have 
curriculum that does not respond to the needs of black children, of brown children. History will explain everything. I don't care what situation you in, you could be in a relationship with somebody and they mm-hmm. acting strange. <laughs> All you have to do is go to the history of that person, right? Mm-hmm. So history will explain, will help us theorize um, literacy or education, but it also justifies where we are and what we need and why we need it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so how can history not be at the center in the core of everything that we do? Mm. I study, I, I study how literacy was historicized for black communities. And I use that as the playbook to approach education, K-12, and even adult education today. So history and ELA are a part of this um this grouping called the humanities, right? And and K-12 education. But history is the most marginalized of of all the core content areas. Now, I'd like to know from you, why do you think this is the case? And and why does your approach to literacy remedy the issue? You know, this thing of humanities is really interesting of a word. And I've been exploring it in some of my writing and my, my, my writings and my talks lately because humanities has sort of been reserved just for social studies, history, and English language arts, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why mathematics isn't a part of the humanities or science. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a problem for me, number one. And then uh, there's also a lack of humanity in the humanities. <laughs> mm. So there's a lack, as you're saying, like there's, a, there's still a lot of marginalization in English language, language arts and social studies and history classes. And so um, why is it the case? Because in, we have been doing things the same way to serve a certain group of students and to not serve other students. That's why it's the case. That's why we are still, I mean, if you think about it, why do we even have to say that we need humanizing education? That's sad. Mm. When did we become less human? Why are we uh, inhumane in schools? Mm. And, but we are, we are, even when you do not teach. If, if I'm telling you black children need this, in their education and it cannot be neglected and you don't do A, B, C, and D, that is inhumane. If you just give them one out of the four, it's inhumane. And so we have been, we have been having a lack of humanity because from the 1600s, when you study like the history of some of these first textbooks, in the United States, we have not largely made the kind, the kind of shifts that are needed. So when we studied the problems back then, we still have the same problems today because it has been designed to serve uh, white children and not other children. So that's where we are. And my approach is a remedy to the hurt and harm that these curriculum companies and publishing companies have caused and and educators have caused to our children, particularly black children, um, it's a remedy because I present a framework, an approach that is responsive to their histories, their identities, their literacies, their humanity. You know, and I'll give you an example. What I found from studying is that our history, our literacy was always, as black folks, right, our history was always embedded into five areas identity development, 
skill development, intellectualism and knowledge seeking. Uh, the fourth is criticality, which is connected to anti-oppression. And the fifth is joy. When I go into many classrooms today, I see one out of those five areas, and that one is skills, skills-driven mm-hmm. assessment. Skill, uh, teachers are even evaluated. They're not evaluated on how much joy they were able to bring. They're evaluated on how they were able to teach the skills. And so the system is telling us teach one. Uh, the history is telling us we need to teach five. And that's and and so a, a lot of people are gravitating to, toward cultivating genius. My book is because it shows them a different way of humanizing curriculum. Mm. I love um, the emphasis on the humanity of the humanities. Right, <laughs> I think that that's definitely something mm-hmm. to to think about and and to consider. Um, so. I want to know about um, the process of disrupting the status quo, right? When it comes to how we teach students um, in in history or ELA, et cetera, um, what kind of texts are required to to you know to challenge the status quo? What, what, what kind of text would we use in order to what, what would a text need to have to be a part of of what you would use in a classroom when, when you're yeah. doing historical literacy? So um, what we first what we currently have when we when we have these skills only curriculum, we have these very watered down skills only texts. And so when we, the way we have been doing it, our students cannot live and breathe in the curriculum and the texts are a part of that. So when we have, when we push reading skills, reading skills, you know, I don't know if you've ever met a child that struggled with reading print text, Mm -hmm. but they can read you up and down. They can read their communities. Mm -hmm. They can read their social context. See, we have only been pushing one type of skill and in the skills only and the way we have been teaching has been decontextualized has been isolated we don't even put real world scenarios and problems oftentimes to the skills that we teach we teach students how to write to inform and entertain and describe real writers do not sit down and say let me write to they don't have those empty reasons. They write to heal, to express their 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 thoughts mm. and all these things. Mm. And so we we teach in these decontextualized ways, and then we have these decontextualized texts where students don't see themselves. And so folks have been like using hashtags like disrupt text and interrupting the text because the text, the authorship are um they don't see themselves in it they're Mm -hmm. the authors are mostly white males um the characters are mostly white um you can add up all people of color and there's still more representation of animals than there are (laughs) of children of color represented in children's books Mm -hmm. 
And we cannot say that we don't have the authors to write them, but we can say that either publishing companies or others are not supporting uh, the publication of these texts. And therefore, schools don't uh, bring them into the learning. So we have to understand that process. And then how do we start to interrupt the text that we currently have? We can be as simple as stop using them and replacing them with better text. Text that will have the opportunities to teach um, not just skills, but in addition to skills, identity, intellectualism, criticality, and joy. You know, we have to stop uh, adopting textbooks and curriculum as school districts, they pay millions of dollars to adopt a curriculum that where their students aren't even seen in the curriculum. You know, mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. social studies standards don't even have the word race or racism in the learning standards. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about cities like Chicago and New York and LA that has more than 80% black and brown kids. And we are adopting curriculum for white children. So mm -hmm. we have to stop adopting the, these curricula. We have to stop using texts that do not uh, express multiple identities and cultures of different people. And then we have to bring in more texts. I call it layering text in my book where we bring in multimodal texts that are short and powerful, that show different ideologies, different um, viewpoints, different teaching about the lives and cultures and histories of people. We have to unearth history. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. we, we teach Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, and Rosa Parks in elementary school. And a lot of times our students, and these are prominent, beautiful figures, no doubt, mm -hmm. but the amount of black history that, go, that goes untaught in K-12 schools is enough where people should feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. And so we have to bring in, if the text is the core, the nucleus, um, it has, when you study black history um, and education and literacy, our books were like the heart, the heartbeat of our learning. Our libraries, before we did anything, we cultivated our libraries. I don't care what black community you look at. We cultivated our libraries first and everything was created around the library. And now when we look in classroom libraries, they're looking a little uh, empty. They might be looking a little white with white text and white authorship. So we have to start with the text. We have to have texts that are social, that are grounded in social political consciousness. We're not just trying to help to cultivate the test taker. We're trying to cultivate the human that has to navigate sexism, uh, racism, other oppressions in the world. We are trying to cultivate uh, the humane human, if you will. And so texts are a really big part of that and having and, and teaching those texts in ways where students have meaningful relationships with them. Mm, you gave us a lot to chew on. We're going to take <laughs> a brief break and we'll be right back to to pick up with some more of this conversation. Okay.
All right. Welcome back to Leading by History. In our first part of the show, I mean, I'm, I'm almost speechless here with some of the, the things that were said by Dr. Muhammad towards the end of um, uh, the first segment here. I mean, you mentioned how, and, and I think this resonated with me, that when we are allowing students to read literature in classrooms, regardless of what it is, there's always a context to the literature that writers are not writing in a vacuum of ideas, emotions, or feelings, but they're laying their heart, their experience, and their thoughts on the page. And if we can't tap into the emotions and the feelings and the experiences of the writer who's writing, because we're only focused on where do we put the the dot, the semicolon, the colon, uh, direct objects, pronouns, you know, that kind of piece. If we can't get to the feeling of the message, then we're we're actually we're leaving something out of the conversation that actually helps our children to make the connections and and to actually want to learn more. I think that was that resonated with me greatly because I think it's something that we 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 think about internally. It makes sense, but just to hear you. Um, you know, bring that, you know, out audibly to hear it said is just like, how can you read To Kill a Mockingbird, which which seems to be like this very popular <laughs> book that is read in English classrooms, like, I don't know, 11th grade or somewhere around there around the nation. And you mean to tell me that the person that was writing this book had no personal experiences, had no proverbial skin in the game and what was being written had no background no context that this book was just written just for the sake of where the periods colons commas were supposed to go right there, there's in the <laughs> right. in the in the telling of a story there's a history and if we're really literate then we should be able to get a glimpse of what the writer is telling us you know it, it makes me think about you know, Emerson or Baldwin, you know, where when you read their works, they were clearly sending a message based upon their lived experiences. And they were ensuring through their language that you were able to tap into that. Right. So that was just such a that was just uh, profound to me to hear that because it's so key. Right. It, it, and it's not just about like taking a text and then trying to create some questions around it to make the text more interesting. It's, it's no, let's, let's actually delve into the text to pull out and extract from it the, the writer's feelings and motivations for the text, which I think is a little bit deeper than how was Bobby explained in the story? Uh, what was the job of Danny? What role did Marcy play, right? Like that's so, it's so stale as opposed to let's get into reading this story and dissect it and let's see what kinds of, of universal themes, right? And humanitarian ideas can be gleaned from the text itself. I mean, you exactly. feel what I'm saying? Like that's-, that's Oh, that's, absolutely. That yeah. is the goal and, and the context and studying the context in which the text was even written in so that you can understand the meaning 
of the authors a little bit more. I mean, you could take the national, the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, people have a problem with it because see, they're, they're reading that text at a surface level. You're not reading it in this full entirety and you're not reading it in the context and the purpose in which it was written. So you're mm. losing so much meaning. And so mm. what kind of student do you want to have in this world? Somebody who is basic, passively mm. taking in information or somebody who is an intellectual and can stand in the room with folks? Mm. Mm. I love that. So what, what are your thoughts about education today? Right. And, and, and how has or can virtual learning uh, change the trajectory of instruction? Right. I don't want to I want people always say when they come on my show, I ask these loaded questions. Right. And I don't want to give too much. But but first, let's just start with what are your thoughts about education today and, and how has or can virtual learning change the trajectory of, of, of instruction? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I have lots of thoughts of education today, but I'll give you the the quick, the important things. The important thing is that we have made progress in education, no doubt, and I'm not ever going to not state that. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are not excellent. We are not living up to the potential of who we are. However you define we we are not living up to the potential. We have a basic educational system where we should have an excellent one. Mm. And that is how I feel about education. We have not served all students well. We have not uh, accelerated learning at paces that we should, especially for black and brown children, especially, especially for black children. We have four major problematic areas. Um, one is the, the state standards, like the Common Core state standards. The second is most curriculum that uh, school districts adopt. Um, they have been getting ratings of culturally destructive. You know, New York mm. City did a, a analysis of many adopted curriculum programs in schools, and a lot of them did not get high ratings. Uh, however, these companies are... Uh, making a lot of money off of black and brown failure. So mm. curriculum is a big problem. Um, if the standards are a problem, of course, the curriculum is going to be a problem because that's what they use to write the curriculum are the standards. The third area that is problematic are assessments. How we use, I'm not against assessing. Um, we assess and gather information on a, a regular, a natural innate quality that most humans have. I'm not uh, against assessment, it's how we use assessments, um, how we use assessments to further marginalize uh, children and teachers, um, the pressure that assessments cause, and what we are assessing. We're not assessing everything that we should value. So when we take a look at those areas, until those areas are transformed, we're gonna have the same problems in education. We're not going to be excellent, period. We need standards for equity and excellence. We need standards for identity, for skills, for intellectualism, and standards for criticality. Just having standards for skills has never been enough for our country, mm -hmm. right? Just, we need anti-racist teachers. 
we don't need non-racist teachers. We don't need teachers that be silent and uncomfortable with the topic. We need teachers that are going to teach in ways that will uh, cultivate the child at the end of the day to uh, when they see wrongdoing and oppression in the world, they do something about it. They just don't remain silent. And they certainly, we don't want students that will contribute to more oppression. But we see that. We see kids growing up and they are the oppressors. They're the mm. new oppressors of the world. And so that's where we are. We have, certainly we have more diverse books than we ever have. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've made some progress. We have the money and resources in this country to do, and we have the intellect to do better. And, and we should have no excuse for still being where we are in 2020. And so that's the first part of how I feel about education. Uh, in terms of virtual learning, virtual learning can cre can produce some really exciting opportunities for educators if if we go in that path. So like as I'm virtual learning with youth, I'm, I tell teachers, I said, teach something that sets your soul on fire. You know, like people are not going to judge and evaluate us the same as they would in person, period. It's just not going to be the same. So why you have a unique uh, moment where people are still trying to figure out how to do it well, teach something that sets your soul on fire. Stop following these scripted programs just because, you know, you think you have to. Teach mm -hmm. something interesting. Keep their attention. Stop calling them unmotivated and teach motivating curriculum. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were teaching an, un, in unmotivating ways, in person, you are probably likely to continue that uh, practice online. <laughs> if you were teaching with packets and worksheets in person, mm. you are probably going to do that online. So it's going to be a problem each way. The virtual learning has also stopped a lot of states from giving the state assessment, which was largely problematic and culturally biased oftentimes. So I'm hoping we stop the estate assessment until we get a better assessment, a more um, humane assessment, if mm. you will. Mm. So that's it's another opportunity to stop that foolishness. Mm. So when we talk about dismantling white supremacists or Eurocentric paradigms in K-12 education, how do you think the average teacher in a K-12 classroom, maybe you can give an example, you know, from K-5 or 6, 8 or 9, 12, but maybe even in their practices, how would they do that using your framework? So first, the school leaders, the school and district leaders have to stop putting teachers in a position where they have to teach, uh, select between poor or worse curriculum or mm -hmm. basic or worse curriculum. Like all curriculum should be responsive. All curriculum should be excellent and should be equitable. A teacher should not have to uh, sprinkle like equity dust and spend time revising mm -hmm. the curriculum. But that's what's happening. So what I tell teachers is like you take your basic curriculum and you refine it and you build from it and you add more text. So I am basically telling them 
if the curriculum is not responsive and is not excellent, you have to add to it. Because the other alternative is to teach it as it is, and that can create harm for students, for some students, if not mm. all of them. So if they are teaching, you know, like um, scale uh, drawings and how to measure and calculate things, I teach them how to you how do you bring in text um, that it that will contextualize measurement of a room or scale drawings. This is a math example. So like what we did was we brought in uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, "What Is Your Life's Blueprint." speech that he gave to kids and uh, where he talks about the metaphor of a blueprint. And so for identity, students had to determine what were their blueprints for their lives or their life's goals. For um, skills, they learn how to measure uh, scale drawings for mathematics to measure different rooms um, on the worksheet and in their house. So it was a little bit more contextualized. They had to design a room based on measurements. So it feels more connected to the real world. For intellect, they learned the history of the blueprint. Who, in, who, who named it? Who coined the term? Um, why was it blue? Why wasn't it, you know, brown? I don't know. Like they mm -hmm. learned the history of the blueprint and architecture, both metaphorically and literally. And then for uh, criticality, they learned uh, in, in conjunction with Martin Luther King's speech, what are those economic and sociological factors that can in, inhibit one from reaching their goals? What mm. are those sort of uh, social political things that get in the way from somebody trying to strive toward their full potential? So now you have a full contextualized uh, lesson. If you would have stopped that lesson with the scale drawings, the worksheets, and the math textbook, look at all that child would have uh, not received. Mm -hmm. And it can be boring for a child that is already disengaged with math. Right. You now just going to keep bringing this textbook? No. Make it, make it connected to their life. Connect mm -hmm. math to, to living. Mm -hmm. what, what do we need to start doing today to create genius in our schools? I mean, your, your text, right, is focused on, I don't know if we want to call it your seminal work, right? But I mean, this is obviously extremely important to you. And so how do we, you know, how do we today, how do we start creating genius in our schools? Now, you've given us some things already. Right. That I, I believe mm -hmm. that take it, take us to those steps. But is there anything that we need to think about? Like, let's focus this one on district administrators, not just building administrators or, you know, building teachers, but superintendents or those who are in, in charge of uh, the academic world or, you know, uh, uh, of a district or whatever the case may be. What, what do district leaders need to be thinking about and, and what kinds of um, what kinds of freedoms need to be distributed, if I could say, to the people lower down the line to be able to create this genius in our schools? I, I hope I'm clear in the question I'm asking, because a lot of times 
we say, well, like, for example, what you just gave was how a teacher could do this. But if you're in a district where like we've we've seen recently that, you know, the, the president has basically given a a ruling, if you will, that is going to remove critical pedagogy right? Critical race theory and all of that kind of stuff from being taught in these federal institutions. And of course, eventually that starts making its way down Mm -hmm. the pike into school districts. And so there are some school districts that, you know, I I read in a a couple of tweets where people were were saying they were told they can't even discuss current events or anything Mm -hmm. of that nature. So, So the question that I have for you is, how do district leaders begin to help create genius in the schools? Because I believe the teachers, if they get the right support, they can do it. But what happens when you're under the shackles of a greater authority that that's already saying that's not the direction we're going? What I, I hope that's not too well, loaded. I no, know it's no, no, a no, lot, no it is. It's a beautiful question. And I totally get it. And people better ask themselves, are they shackled and whose authority are you under? Because I'm not under anybody's authority, but my creator and my parents, as mm-hmm. long as I do what's best for them. So folks got to ask, who are you shackled to? Who are you mm-hmm. accountable to? Are you mm-hmm. accountable to the children and their families or to somebody telling you that, uh, Uh, that we can't do uh, critical race theory or anti-racist training. Uh, I am always going to select the children. And this is the oath that educate. You know how medical uh, professionals Mm -hmm. take an oath? We Mm -hmm. have to take an oath, too, to do no harm. And we have done harm. And people got to be very clear. People do not want this kind of training. The president doesn't want this kind of training because he's trying to erase blackness. You're trying to, how can you teach Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and you don't teach racism and critical Mm. race theory? Mm. It it doesn't go hand in hand. So, but it's easier for a leader to say, I don't want critical race theory and anti-racism. Really what, if you translate that, I don't want blackness and black Mm. excellence and black truths and black stories to be taught. See, we got to go deeper. We get, we cannot, we have to really understand why we became a teacher in the first place. Mm. And if you are about not creating harm, stop creating harm. And you Mm. have to be willing, as James Baldwin said, to go for broke a little bit. Stop being so (laughs) fearful of, of, I'm going to lose my job if I do what's best for children. You know, that's just simply uh, not true. Uh, now, some people work in racist structures, but if if you are doing what's best, what I am saying, and you still lose your job, you probably going to make more money in the lawsuit <laughs> mm-hmm. because you have, you're not being honest with yourself. You don't want to do this this way. You don't want to do the humane way. You want to do the comfortable way that's easier. And our students don't deserve easy. They deserve people who are putting in the hard work. So what school leaders and district leaders can do, they have to go beyond rhetoric. They talk, we have district superintendents and other leaders, they talk the good rhetoric of anti-racism and equity, but their systems, their frameworks are still written by all white people. Mm -hmm. How can you have both? 
So they have to stop right, adopting curriculum where companies have no history of this. They have to stop adopting state standards where it is nothing about equity in the standards. See, they have a lot of power and control. And they have to start putting something in front of teachers that they can work with. And they have to, I work with principals all the time on rewriting their interview questions and their recruitment. Go out and recruit the best. Stop waiting for applications in your school to come to you. Go out and recruit the best. I found out that my first teaching job, I found out how I got it about mm, 15 years later. I found out that the lady of the school district, this white woman named Judy Smith, and she was so sweet. She hired me. She said, I found out that she went to her, she went to the local university where I was a student, and she asked one question to all the professors at this big event. Who is your top student that's about to graduate? They pointed to me. I did not know this. They pointed to me, and then she just hired me. See, we need to do things a little different. Stop at, stop wanting equitable and humane teachers when your interview questions say, well, why do you want to be a teacher? That does not help me to understand if they're how they're going to be anti-racist. <laughs> we need to ask better questions so that we get teachers that we don't have to spend so much time with remediation mm-hmm. of their teaching skills, their pedagogical skills. So, again, leaders can have better rubrics. For selecting curriculum, they can have better lesson plans. They have to move past the rhetoric and have better systems and frameworks. Um, They have to have people on their team of color um, to bring in more diverse diversity of thought. But most importantly, they have to have a consciousness. You can't you can't talk about consciousness if you don't live that life. Mm. You can't just be a social justice advocate from nine to five. This has to be your culture, your your existence, your being. So that's what that's what leaders can do uh, today. Um, they have to be willing to go beyond what the system is asking. The system is only asking for one, and we're going to give you one plus. And so go beyond the system. We have enough scholarships, and Lord knows we have enough articles and literature written about it, so just do it. And that's why I wrote the book, Cultivating Genius, where anybody can pick it up and read it in a day if they wanted to. And it gives, like, lesson plans, examples um, of everything. Like, let's just just do it. So Let's leave the fear at home. <laughs> leave the fear at home. I love that. And and uh, you know, I would say, hey, let's just leave the fear. Period. Right. Let let's let's eradicate the fear. Right. Because we have to, we have to put ourselves in a place and space to do bold work. And you can't do that if you're timid or afraid. So, yeah, d- definitely um, great words. So as we come to the end of our time together. Um, I want to know from you, how can people contact you if they want to, to bring you to their districts to, to, to speak, if they would like for you to do some consultation work, if, that, if that's something that's possible, um, where can they get your, your book, how can they contact you on social media, etc. You know, give us all of the layouts of where we can have access to Dr. Goldie Muhammad. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get the book on scholastic.com. Uh, um, you can just do a search of my name. Uh, that's the book publisher. Um, Amazon, of course, and all these other sites uh, sell the book. Um, and to get in contact with me in terms of social media, I have a Cultivating Genius Facebook page. You can follow us. I, I post lesson plans and ideas there um, and also upcoming talks. Um, I do a lot of public speaking events. Um, on Twitter, I'm under Goldie M, um, G-H-O-L-D-Y, and the letter M. And Instagram is also Goldie M. And the name of uh, my consulting company is Hill Pedagogies, um, H-I-L-L, and then pedagogies with an S at gmail.com. So, hillpedagogies at gmail.com. A lot of teachers and educators reach out. They want to talk. I talked to a teacher from originally from Indiana earlier, and she wanted to figure out her syllabus for community college, you know, and we did it together. You know, mm-hmm. I, I people who know me, I spend my time uh, helping, and if you, if you, you don't have to be in the struggle by yourself. You know, we will figure out this thing together. And so, yeah. We thank you so much for uh, the conversation. Um, there, there was a lot here. And uh, I know that our listeners are going to go back and listen to it again and again as they normally do. They, they don't want to miss anything. They want to catch everything. But, <laughs> but I thank you so much for, for being with us today on Leading by History. And for those of us at Leading by History, we say to you, Dr. Muhammad, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.